to a special edition of Her Story on the Rocks. Typically, I am sitting with my co-host Katie and we're having a couple of cocktails and talking about famous women from history. But today it's 11 a.m. so I am drinking water and talking to a wonderful woman making history. We have a very special guest with us here today, Anne McCutcheon. And I said your name right, correct? You did. Awesome. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Anne is an author and a lyricist, and we've invited her on the show today to talk about her upcoming biography, The Life She Wished to Live. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? About me? Sure. Um, uh, well, I'm an author. This is my sixth book um, and my second biography. Uh, and, uh, in, in, and so I've been writing uh, for, for some time now. Um, but I started life as a classical musician. That might be of interest to some people. Um, I was um, trained as a classical clarinetist and, and worked as such chamber musician, orchestra musician for some, some time. And writing came uh, a bit later. Um, I had a, some a genetic condition in my hands that started you know, messing with my fingers and um, I, I, and I was writing, always a writer and a reader, and this is like my backup obsession was to write. And so, uh, long story short, that, you know, I, I got to do my second obsession. I, actually, I've gotten to do both, so I'm really happy about that. <laughs> That's really cool. I saw on your website that you, uh, you wrote for like an opera that's coming out in April? Yes, yeah. I've been writing um, lyrics and libretti for, for composers for 20-something um, oh, years now. And that was um, uh, something that came about as, as a performing musician who then composers knew, knew of, and, you know, who, and I worked with them, um, premiering new pieces. And then as I began writing, some of the same composers looked to me for words. And it just kind of rolled into this, um, this other aspect of what I do. So um, I'm, boy, I'm, I'm triply blessed, really. <laughs> that's really cool. I've never, you know, met anybody who does that type of writing. So that's really cool to, to know. Wow. Um, so again, we're, I'm not drinking because it's the morning, but of course on our show, we have a wonderful cocktail for this book, The Life She Wished to Live, and it's an ounce of bourbon, an ounce of sweet tea, a half an ounce of lemon juice, a half an ounce of simple syrup, and some muddled strawberries, and it is delicious. I tried out the recipe last night. Um, I can't wait to have another one later today. <laughs> <laughs> So let's dive into this book. I got obviously early access to it and just had such a great time going through it. I did not know a lot about Marjorie Rawlings. So to like break in was really neat. So I guess let's start by setting the scene for our listeners. Um, the scene of the star of your book. Can you talk a little bit about what her life was like in early 20, 20th century? Sure. She was born in 1896, um, and <clears throat> she began to, to write uh, early on, winning some children's author contests in Washington, D.C., and, um, and she went to the University of Wisconsin for a degree in English. She, she aspired to be um, uh, a literary writer, and uh, it took her some time. She, she went to New York and worked as a publicist uh, after her degree. This is post-World War I. Um, went to um, Louisville, Kentucky with her first husband, did some journalism there, working for the YMCA, YWCA. Um, 
And eventually, uh, uh, in her late 20s, with her husband, was in Rochester, New York, doing journalism. And she said in 1928, both of them were tired of, of uh, journalism, she had a little inheritance from her mother, and she said, let's just move somewhere and write. And she bought, sight unseen, an orange grove in the middle of Florida, not, knowing nothing about raising oranges. She just had this idea, oh, we'll just go there, and we'll write, and this orange grove will support us. And they did. They went there. But of course, it didn't turn out to be an easy um, uh, enterprise at all. They, they had to uh, restore this orange grove, hire workers, and so on. So, but she was writing, and she began to tap in um, immediately to the culture in North Central Florida, the, um, the cracker folks, um, interviewing them. Uh, she had a very good ear for dialect. Uh, early on, she had a very good ear for dialect and began to write about the people and of the people in fiction. And uh, all of this while running an orange grove. So she was a businesswoman and a writer for some years before she won the Pulitzer Prize for the yearling. Um, quite a, an independent lady, just really had to write, wanted to write, would, would, you know, would jump off a cliff to write. And literally, you know, almost literally, she did that. Did that. <laughs> Yeah, she she had such an interesting story and and journey as I was going through the book. But what is what's your connection to her? When were you first introduced to her and how do you feel like your relationship with her has changed as you wrote this book? That is an essay I need to write. <laughs> <laughs> someone was just asking me that the other day. Um someone asked me and I'm going to go off on a little tangent here what will your next book be? Will it be a biography? And I said, I don't know if I could write another biography because you end up spending five, six, seven years of your life with this person every day. I loved spending all this time with Marjorie. I can't think of anyone else who would do it for me. But to, to go back to your um, first question, I grew up in Florida uh, from the age of five and my fourth grade teacher read The Yearling to us. Um, out loud every day after lunch we put our heads on our desks and and listen to her and she was a native Floridian with this great old accent and that that was my first connection but many years later um, we're talking in the last decade <laughs> um, a friend who knew I loved her work um, uh, said to me I think there should be a biography of Marjorie Rawlings and you're the one to write it and let me help you. And she um, offered some initial funding to get the research going and I dove in and never looked back. It's a perfect match, really. My friend was the matchmaker. <laughs> <laughs> it's always great when you get that good advice from a friend. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. Um, so what can you tell me about Marjorie's early life? Did she grow up rough and tumble, or was she frilly and girly, or a mixture of the two? Um, she, she grew up in a suburb of Washington, D.C., um, which I did myself, actually, the first five years, so I know that territory. And, and um, she, her, her parents were from the Midwest, and um, wanting to be upwardly mobile, they, they came from farming um, communities, farming families. And her, her mother wanted her daughter to be a, a member of society, you know, to, you know, to, to marry well and, and then maybe do her creative thing. 
and her father was really still tied to the country and had um, a farm outside of Washington D.C. Uh, so she had there were there were um, opposing forces. Um, her mother wanting you know, to push her, and her father saying, "Hey, let her be." Um, that that was what she grew up um, hearing. Um, her suburb at the time in D.C. Um, was way out on the edge with a lot of wild country just beyond it. So she had, even though she was in a town, she had space to run and play and goof off, um, which a lot of kids don't have these days, um, but she had it. Um, so that was, that was her early uh, pushy mother, um, laid back father, that, in, in so many words. Right. Was, yep. And it seemed to me like, like you were saying, New York, Kentucky, like she was kind of like bouncing around the United States a lot. Do you think that that's why she had such good descriptors of Florida in the book, The Yearling? It seems like she had such vivid, like colorful descriptions. And I just was wondering if you thought it's because of the contrast that she had seen in her life. Hmm. I, I wouldn't say that. Um, uh, I think there, there had always been a, a poet in her. She, that was what she wanted to be when she was in college. And she read widely. Um, what she was trying to do in her early career was sell to the magazines. Um, what a lot of writers do, I'm gonna sell this story to Red Book or whatever is around. Um, and so she was writing for the market. And uh, when she decided to put all that behind her and move to Florida, then her true voice came out you know, the more leisurely, poetic voice, which was a really good match for Florida. So it's hard to say, you know, <laughs> there, yeah. there we go, another, another good match. Um, her, po her poetry, the, um, the, uh, the way she saw the world could come out by way of this Florida in environment and, and its people. So, I mean, it sounds like this writing career was a little bit of like a slow burn for her. Like it, it was a, something that took a while because she had won awards as a kid and she's writing in college and she's working all over the country. So, I mean, you know, do you think it was more of a slow burn or did it feel like a whirlwind to her? Because she won a Pulitzer Prize, you know, her book got turned into a movie, you know, she's like kind of big time. Right. Well, it took some time to get there. Uh, in, in her early uh, career, I mean, I, we have to look at the early 20th century and think about how women writers were regarded and what kinds of opportunities there were for them. Um, not as many as there are today, not so many well-regarded um, women, women authors. Um, and so Edith Wharton, for example, was um, uh, so, someone who um, was before her, but whose first work was published in, you know, serial form in magazines. So where are the entry points? Well, you could be, uh, at the time, a publicity writer. You could be one of the very early women journalists, which she was. She, But the things women were assigned to write in newspapers then were, like, the obituaries, the society column, and then... Um, uh, sensational pieces about divorces and and how to get a man and that that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. she that those were her entry points. That that's where she could get earn as a writer because she was determined to earn her living as a writer. Um, I think I'm getting off topic, but that, <laughs> but that's that's the the situation she was in starting out as a writer um, when she 
was able to make the break and go to Florida, then she could say, all right, I'm doing this. I'm, no matter what, I'm doing this. And her husband uh, was with her on that. Um, I might mention that they were college sweethearts and there was a lot of friction once they got married over whose career, would she have a career? It was, it was, um, it, it was tough between them and it didn't last. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like, I know one of the columns I, I thought that I saw that she had written was like Songs of a Housewife. Um, yeah. And can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I know her marriage was, did suffer from a lot of friction. So what is she writing in these columns? Well, she, um, she, she, for a couple of years, um, she wasn't writing at all. She was in, uh, she and her husband were based in Rochester where his, his family was, but he was a traveling uh, salesman. And so he was on the road a lot. She got a, a gig right away in Rochester writing for the local paper. Um, these sensational and, and page one and page three stories, um, which is a, a big deal. Her, her uh, husband got jealous, um, thought she was having an affair maybe with her editor. So she quit. She just quit. She was doing nothing that we know of for a couple of years. And then the newspaper offered her, or she may have offered it to them, who knows, a weekly column called Songs of a Housewife. She'd been a housewife for a couple of years, just hanging out, waiting for him to come home. Um, so they were poems, they were rhyming poems about doing the dishes and doing the laundry and um, making a meal. And that went on for nearly two years that it, it sold. I've been in that position myself <laughs> where, okay, someone, I, I wrote an antiques and collectibles column um, for nearly 10 years. It was a, a steady gig, a steady gig. I enjoyed it, but it was not literature. Um, right. No, it was like, like Marjorie, here's, I've got a job. I'm turning it in every week. And uh, after two years of that, the um, paper discontinued that column uh, because of uh, sales and mergers of newspapers as those things happen. And that's when she left, they left mm -hmm. and went to Florida. Yeah. Um, when I first got the email uh, about this book to have you on the show, one of the things that stuck out to me in the email, other than obviously the oranges, is the word alligators. <laughs> I was like, because when you, when you think about Florida, you think oranges, alligators, Disney World. And this email had two of those things. Um, so what, what's her deal with alligator hunting? Well, she did write um, uh, a little bit about alligator hunting, but she... She, she went on one gator hunt that I know of, and uh, she had a, a man who's very experienced in gator hunting take her out, you know, in, in a John boat at night. And uh, they had a great time, but she never caught one. She never snatched one, however you, you say it. And, uh, and so um, that's, that's about what we know, that they had a good time. She didn't succeed. And uh, in fact, the the fellow who took her out and was interviewed much later about it um, had asked her, so are you going to write a story about what we've done here? And she said, sorry, no, no gator, no story. <laughs> <laughs> so I know. Yeah. So no alligators are all about in the, the wetlands uh, in, in Florida, but it, it wasn't, um, uh, you know, there were other things that, that uh, she, she did and hunted and, and, uh, 
you know, found out about while she was there. Yeah, I saw a picture of her on your website with like um, holding like a crab out, like in the pinchers and crab. Yeah, I'm from Maryland. So crabs were like, I know what that is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, crabbing's great in Florida. Still is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so you know, the yearling's one of her most famous writings, but she wrote a lot after that that some of it was well received and some of it wasn't. What are some of the, the other things that she wrote? Well. Uh, to start with, her first novel, South Moon Under, um, is a gem, and it was a contender for the Pulitzer. It, it's, uh, I recommend it to everybody. Um, after that came Golden Apples, which is um, set on a same central Florida, but has um, an orange grove at the heart of it. Then came The Yearling, um, which won the Pulitzer for, the, for 1938. Um, after that, she wrote um, a memoir, it, one would call it a memoir, um, called Cross Creek. And it, it was a, a series of um, pieces about various aspects of living in Cross Creek, Florida, the rural area, the people, the, um, the practices, the way they lived, but nonfiction, you know, looking back and she's, of course, the, the, the main character giving us this, this view. It's a wonderful book. Um, it, it, it sold very well. It, it, it was on par with The Yearling as, as far as popularity. And then came a novel, um, oh, in there was a collection of short stories. She was publishing short stories in The New Yorker and Scribner's Magazine, places like that, and they were collected. She wrote a cookbook as well, since food and food preparation, which was a great love of hers, she was, loved entertaining people. So she put out a cookbook that had a, a lot of narrative in it. So you learn more about her kitchen and the people she cooked with as you follow the recipes. Even her mother, who was long gone, is in that book. The last novel came then, The, the Sojourner. And it took um, a long time to write, partly because her, her editor, Maxwell Perkins, who many will know is a very famous editor for Scribner. He was the editor of... Uh, Hemingway, Thomas Wolfe, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And she, when she was discovered by him, became part of that stable. He guided her writing all the way through Cross Creek and the cookbook, past the yearling, and died in 1947, just as she was beginning to start this next novel. So it took her a while to get that going. It's, it's not set in Florida. It's uh, set in the upper Midwest or Upper New York State, however you want to look at it, um, and uh, she she had trouble. She by then she was um, uh, she had an alcohol problem and some health problems, and so her health was um, kind of sketchy. And it wasn't until a good friend of hers, Norman Berg, who was a representative for Macmillan um, Publishing Company in Atlanta, helped her out and volunteered to um, go along with her and, and help edit and help shape the book. And that came out uh, the year before she died. Mm -hmm. I love that book. I love that book. <laughs> uh, it was not as well received. It was well received, not quite as well as the Florida books because critics would say, where's the world of the yearling? We miss Florida. But she, she set this book you know, elsewhere. For, for various reasons, but um, 
Anyway, I may be going on too long about that. No, not at all. <laughs> um, what do you think when, when people order your book and they sit down to read it in late April, what do you think they're going to relate to most in Marjorie's story and in Marjorie's life? Hmm. I, I think they would relate to or, or admire um, uh, her self-directedness. Um, she had a lot of barriers as a, as a woman uh, writer, uh, being a, a serious writer at that time. Uh, she also had entered a culture that she knew nothing about, just plopped herself down in the middle of it. And so she had to learn how to navigate as, as a essentially Northern woman <laughs> um, with more resources than her neighbors had. Mm-hmm. So she was a little, she was an outsider and she, she um, had to gain people's confidence. To back up, she was so um, determined to do what she wanted to do. And she figured out how to navigate every world that she entered. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, versatility, just street smarts, <laughs> which yeah. I admire. Yeah. <laughs> I took a lot of inspiration from her. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that you've written uh, another biography before. Mm-hmm. Where do you start when you sit down to write a biography? Because it seems like a monumental task. It is. It is. Um, uh, first, you have to see what kinds of materials you have to work with. Every biography is, is different. I mean, it's based on what you can find out, right? Uh, what already exists. And in the case of the first biography, which was a biography of a flu- French flutist, there weren't many pieces of paper. I mean, the, the archive, so to speak, was a cardboard box. And at first I thought, I, I cannot do this. But then I realized that um, there were a, enough people around who'd known him. He'd recently died, that I could base a lot of material, uh, my book on interviews, or the interviews would inform that life um, trajectory. And that is that was my strategy. Um, in addition to creating the, the context you lived in, which one can do by reading and researching and so forth. What was Paris like in 1915, for example? Um, so with Marjorie, um, I was really lucky, or, um, or or not, depending on how you look at it. The the Rawlings archive at the University of Florida is immense. She left so much material. Um, more than four thousand letters are in that archive. Uh, in addition to her manuscripts and various drafts of, of work and and other materials, and so I had a lot, a lot to work with, and some of. Some of those letters had been collected in books by scholars before me who had, for example, um, collected the, the correspondence between her and Max Perkins, her editor, which is a nice thick book. And you can just read through and understand that relationship. And from those letters, I could pluck um, the sorts of quotes and, and figure out the, you know, what, how their relationship went over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, so the letters were the... The ba- her letters and her work, um, her published work, were the basis um, for starting. But there was a lot to go through. And I have to say that I couldn't have gotten through it without the help of um, Florence Turcott, who is the archivist 
for the Marjorie Rawlings uh, collection at the University of Florida. She was really a partner in crime all the way. And may every biographer be blessed with someone like her. Um, yeah, it was, th that was the fundamental, you know, the basis for starting, for starting. Do you, do you have a favorite primary document of hers that you just kept going back to and you like found a lot of inspiration from, or was it just so much you couldn't pick out one or two things? That's a really good question. Um, uh, wow. I was drawn to um, some correspondence and there wasn't much of it um, between her, what, what's really letters to, no, letters, she wrote and letters, yeah, between them. She and Zora Neale Hurston had um, a significant meeting um, in 1942 or 43, now I've forgotten, 42. Um, and at that time, Marjorie held the sort of conventional racist um, views um, that you know most white people did and some white people still do. Um, and she met Zora who was her literary equal. And she, it just changed her life. She suddenly saw, ah, oh, here is this woman of color who is writing wonderful books and it shook her world. She mm -hmm. had employed, Marjorie employed, several um, black workers on her, in her orange grove. And she treated them as, as such. You know, she told them what to do. She, uh, they were not friends. When she made a friend of a, a, a black writer, suddenly she saw everything differently. And I've gone back to those letters. Um, I've gone back to um, letters that she wrote to friends about this kind of come to Jesus with race that um, began to uh, lead her into being an advocate for civil rights. And she spoke publicly for it. She, um, so yes, I. I visited that time and again, how to interpret that, how to, because it's very um, important for readers even now to see how one moves from one position you know, to another. It's still, still a challenge. Yeah, so. that's so interesting, wow. Yeah. Uh, and I have to ask this for my own knowledge, because I always ask this about primary documents. Does she have decent handwriting? We've heard from some people, handwriting is abysmal and it's terrible to get through. And some people like, no, beautiful cursive, loved it. <laughs> That's a good one. I, I once did a talk on her handwriting. Um, she, she wrote um, big, scrawly, big scrawly hand and, uh, and not always complete sentences. Like she was talking to you. And so there would be a, a sentence and an idea and then a big dash and then finish the idea later. Um, I could not describe her handwriting without using my own hands as I'm doing now to, uh, to express it. It was very expressive. Now in typed letters to people, she often had, um, if she had an anecdote, something that had happened to her, she might've polished that anecdote and written it almost word for word in the same you know, letter to two or three people. But a handwritten letter uh, or handwritten draft was um, exuberant. <laughs> <laughs> Good word. I can tell you're a writer. <laughs> a five point word. <laughs> um, did, did the research take you anywhere interesting in Florida? Did you get to like visit any places that she had been? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, of course, I I spent went numerous times to her farm, which is which is now a um, historic site, and people can tour it. And I heard the tour many many times uh, and took friends there. Um, I went to St. Augustine a bit because she um, eventually bought a beach house um, just south of St. Augustine to get away from all the fans who would find her at the at the Orange Grove. Um, I uh, that that would be it right right in that area you know where and I did some hiking I love to hike so I did some hiking um, there's a a trail in the Ocala National Forest called uh, the Yearling Trail which takes you by the various sites actual places in the book and you can see where this happened and that happened and and that's that that's always fun to do um, then there were travels outside of Florida um, to find her um, her old house in Rochester to see the house she eventually bought in Van Hornsville, New York to write her last novel. I saw her birth house in Washington, D.C. in the school where she attended and her second house in D.C. Um, I, I went, I did not go to Wisconsin or Louisville, although I had research assistants in both places. That's one thing I had to do. It was so wide ranging, I ended up hiring three research assistants, uh, graduate students, essentially in these various places. So they were a great help. That's so cool. It's <laughs> so neat to, I'm sure, you know, when you're writing a biography, like you said, it's like you're living with the person and then to go and actually step in a place where they've been, it's probably oh. like a surreal moment. Yes. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in writing about her, finding, learning things about her, if she uh, I began to just think of her as Marge, and and so did Flo Turcott, the archivist. And so uh, I'd find something in a letter that I would, why, why did she do that? You know, good goodness, you know. And I'd I'd say, oh Marge, come on, you know, as if I were living her life with her, but you know, I wasn't. But I was in a way, step by step, you know, trying to figure her out. I love that. My my, uh, my little sister's name is Marjorie, so I'm quite fond of, oh, Marge. <laughs> Stop yeah, <exactly>. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're coming up on the end. We've been talking for a half hour. It's been so pleasant. So where can people find you? Where can they find your book? How can they get some of the other things that you wrote? Because I know we have a... Um, um, one of our most favorite listeners it, it was a music teacher for her life. So she's going to want to find all your other stuff too. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, uh, like everyone else, I have a website. Um, so it's, it's www.annemccutcheon.com. All run together, annemccutcheon.com. And the books are all there and, um, and, and ways to click and order, of course, to the major, um, to the publisher and the, and the major um, online outlets. But um, I also encourage uh, readers to go to their independent bookstore um, and order there because uh, they can get them. They can get that book. Uh, and uh, I'll be, um, for example, here in Laramie, Wyoming, Second Story Books is where I would send everybody. Um, so uh, I, I advocate that. Um, what else did you ask now? I've forgotten. What <laughs> oh, oh, where they can find you and when the book comes out. Okay, April 27th is the um, official release date. Um, most likely the book will be available just before then. I, I always order, uh, even though the publisher will send me a copy uh, or, or more, I always order one just to see who gets 
where it comes from where it comes first. Um, so it could be before April 27th. And there will be some online, um, uh, a couple of Zoom interviews, events right around that time. And as those um, time, we have the dates, but the times are not out yet. On my media page and events page on my website, that will all be there uh, as soon as possible. So that could awesome. be helpful. Well, thank you so much for joining me so early in the morning for you. You're still on coffee because you're two hours earlier than us. I had a blast. I really enjoyed learning from your book and just kind of living, you know, in this biography that you so wonderfully set up for us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here and, and I hope people enjoy Marjorie's life. It was a great one. I, I think they really will. story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye